You're listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series features 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is episode 14. John Sullivan was the first manager of the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, serving in this role for over a decade. In our interview, Sullivan provides some fascinating insight into the issues that needed to be addressed during the early years of the NCA. Sullivan. Uh, I'm currently the, uh, the supervisory realty specialist in the Idaho State Office, currently on detail to the Washington office as the land exchange program lead for the Bureau, covering two jobs more or less, if you want to put that way, I guess. Been with the BLM almost 41 years, be 41 years in May, and I transferred to uh, the Boise District in 1988 as an acquisition specialist acquiring uh, wilderness study area in holdings and within a few months after I realized that there weren't very many landowners really willing to allow us to acquire their in holdings <laughs> I, I asked to be transferred into a realty specialist position um, and there was one open so I worked in the Bruno field office from um, 89 until uh, 93 when the NCA enabling act was passed and then I was transferred into a supervisory resource management specialist, basically a team lead because they, didn't, they hadn't uh, hired an NCA manager at the time. So I was a team lead writing a management plan, not the RMP, but uh, just a management plan for the, for the NCA. I'm actually updating it, if you will, because I think the first one was written back in the 70s, late 70s, 78 or something like that. So I was in that position from 93 to what, January, I think it was 95 when I was actually formally um, hired as the NCA manager. And then I was in that position until 2009 and then uh, became the wilderness program lead when uh, the Omnibus Public Land Management Act 2009 uh, uh, designated those six wilderness areas in southwest Hawaii County there. And I stayed in that position until 2015, I think it was, when I took on the, my current position here in the state office. So kind of my history. So. Cool. Explain to me, this is something that I think, well, I don't know, something I'm curious about. Like you said you started off as, or early on before you became the NCA manager, you were a realty specialist. Yes. What does that mean in the context of like BLM? I think when people hear that word, they don't think about public lands. Yeah, that's right. And it really doesn't, it, it's a position or it's a it's a title that doesn't transfer into the private sector as much. You always think of a, you know, a real estate person, but it's really not. It's a public sector, at least the Forest Service and BLM. We have a lot of authority to dispose of or acquire properties uh, or issue leases or permits, you know, for something less than fee ownership. And they're under just a whole number of different kinds of laws and regulations. And so the BLM maintains a training center in, in Phoenix and a realty specialists go there. We, I went to it in 1982 for what, it was 15 weeks, I think it was. So it's a, uh, and you learn all the laws and regulations that are that pertain to each different type of acquisition or disposal. And like right now, I've, in my career, I've done about 
know, somewhere between, I kind of lose track, 40 or 50 land exchanges and probably know more about that than anyone in the Bureau. So they asked me to take on the temporary land exchange program lead Bureau-wide. So I have my kind of hands in the mix of all these big exchanges that are happening Bureau-wide. They're kind of, I'm kind of the gate gatekeeper. They come across my desk first for review and make sure that they've got all their T's crossed and I's dotted and things like that, you know. Um, but the same thing goes for land sales or land acquisitions, whether we acquire in fee or we acquire conservation easements or whether we're just getting a road access easement for a timber sale or whatever it is. All those actions require some knowledge of, of realty law and, and, and processes. So, you know. gotcha. How did that expertise translate into this position you got as the NCA manager? What I didn't say is when I started out with the Bureau back in 1978, I was a, a range management specialist. Okay. Okay. That's what I have my master's degree in. Um, so I spent five years, you know, working on grazing leases and so on. So that plus my realty experience kind of gives me a really well-rounded understanding of, of what all is happening out there, either from a, from a vegetation or, or minerals perspective or wildlife or whatever. So as a manager, it's it's a good transition with that background to understanding what's going on out there and, and kind of guiding your staff, you know. So mm -hmm. Some managers come up through the ranks without some some resource background, they're having to rely solely on their staff without really understanding or appreciating what's going on themselves in their head, you know. So they don't know if they're being told everything correctly or not, you know. Sure. Yeah. sure. I guess I'm curious, like, at what point you became aware of the Snake River Canyon area. Were you familiar with this area before you became the manager and were you aware of the process that was that occurred that led to the bill being passed that created the NCA before you became the manager? Uh, yeah, I remember back in 1980 um, when uh, not the NCA but the Birds of Prey area was was designated. It was kind of a big deal bureau-wide because it was a it was one of the first of its kind kind of designations that was large area like that. And I remember hearing about the Birds of Prey area, you know, but I wasn't really knowledgeable of the area. Except I did spend a winter, 1969-1970, uh, I spent the winter in Nampa, Idaho. When I, <laughs> uh, it took me nine years to get through my undergraduate degree, and, uh, because after, when I was a sophomore, they went to a lottery uh, system. And when they pulled my, my number, my number was like 340 because every every date throughout the year had a number. So I knew I would never be drafted based on that number. So I dropped out of school and started bumming around. <laughs> and I ended up running out of money and gas in Nampa, Idaho, of all places in 1969. So I spent the winter there and, you know, working and getting a little cash. And So I, I knew it from that perspective, having lived here for you know, not quite a whole year, I guess, but I had never actually been into the Birds of Prey area. Um, and then when we moved back to 1988, then, um, you know, the area I worked in, the Bruno Field Office, covered that area, so I became more aware of what was going on down there. It's kind of the history. Gotcha. By 88, I mean, we're getting close to this period when mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, the legislation was finally passed to, to designate it as an NCA, even though the area had been set aside through the withdrawal in 1980. Was that as big of a deal or was 
that not not as big like I mean with like within the BLM right because you said I mean, it sounds like 1980 when that withdrawal took place like that was a big deal mm-hmm. was the actual designation as as big of a deal? Well, yeah, because back then um, I think it was the first national conservation area that BLM had been. I think that's true. It's the first NCA that was designated, and a lot of people were concerned because. You know, the reason that the Birds of Prey area was designated in 1980 is to put a halt to a lot of the, the desert land entry uh, and the potential farming of the area that, that would have taken place under the Desert Land Act. And, and a lot of people were concerned that that 20-year withdrawal would expire without, without additional protection going on. So I think that was, uh, that was important on two, on two levels. One is the continuing protection, and then two, this... Uh, National Conservation Area designation, which uh, then later became part of the National Conservation Lands, you know, system, you know, which didn't didn't exist at that point in time, but would later become important, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. so, how did you get pulled into the NCA? Right, like, how, how did you become? You you mentioned before you became the director, you were involved in like writing a resource management plan. I'm like, uh, I mean, how did how did that happen? Was that something you were specifically like that you sought out? Yeah, I, it was something I you know they said they asked me if I would like to uh, to be the manager, and I said yeah. And even though it was you know it was a competitive announcement, I was hired for that position. But before I was hired as a manager in that interim position is as team lead, if you will. Uh, one of the jobs that they wanted me to do was to update the management plan, not the resource management plan, but it was a it was a lower level management plan just specific for the Birds of Prey area. Okay. And uh, like I say, the, there had been one done in the 70s, uh, but we updated it, I think in 95 or 96 is when we completed that plan. But then subsequent to that, because it was administrative unit all of its own, uh, even though it was nested inside the what is now the Four Rivers Field Office, we developed the RMP specifically for that. I think that's dated 2008, if I remember right. Yeah, it took us <laughs> almost eight years to get that done. But uh, like I say, that the the interim management plan was something that was basically that was the first job that we did as a team to uh, to update that. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, and one of the first things we looked at um, was the issue of, of shooting ground squirrels out there. And we looked at it from two levels. One on the impacts of shooting on the ground squirrels themselves and the, the impacts on recreational safety uh, out there going on. And, and um, I proposed putting a shooting closure on about half of the NCA, basically everything west of the training area, the orchard training area. And that met a lot of uh, a lot of resistance, especially from residents in CUNA. But I did get a lot of support from people who lived in and around the edges of the NCA that were being impacted by those bullets that were, you know, breaking their windows or you know, cows had been shot. Or in fact, there were actually three over a period of two years, there were actually three people out there were shot. <laughs> no, two people shot and one guy almost. But there were some. You know, housing, uh, you know, windows shot and things like that, and bullets impacting walls of houses. So we had some pretty good and some strong support by the the local area residents, and we were able to, um, to actually initiate a, a shooting closure, but we actually modified it in the end um, so that uh, everything from CUNA down to the 
500 kV power line. I don't know if you've been down Swan Falls Road. Mm -hmm. Okay. So six miles south of town, everything down to that point was closed to shooting, and everything from there on, all the way down to the dam on the west side of Swan Falls Road is also close to shooting, and that was very, very uh, politically difficult to get through. In fact, uh, I was called up in front of a congressional hearing right here in town. They they held it specifically because the congressman didn't want us to do it, but uh, we held our ground and and, and got it through. You know. So obviously that, you know, that's one example of an issue that you had to deal with uh, early on mm -hmm. um, after the creation of the NCA. But I, I'm curious just to get like a big picture perspective of like what it was like to step in as the manager of this newly created National Conservation Area, which at the time, as you said, that was not, uh, you know, there, there weren't very many NCAs. Mm -hmm. in existence maybe you can describe a little bit about like what what that job meant and like what you know what were your roles and responsibilities but also like what was it like given the sort of uniqueness of the the situation with that that particular national conservation area you know i think the biggest thing was an educational process to get people to understand why such an area was set aside and it wasn't that I mean, obviously, I mean, there's 25 species of raptors coming through there at different points of the year. You know, you, you, they look at the boundary and says, you know, what this boundary is really crazy. Why was it made that way? And and the education process of getting them to understand that that boundary was there to protect the the area that were producing the, all the squirrels that supported the those raptors, you know, or at least the bulk of them anyway. Uh, and that uh, there was some really there was some thought put into it, you know. Uh, but so that was that was one of the biggest things is starting this educational process to get people to understand better what was important and, and and what was important to protect out there, you know. It was also the way that the law was written, uh, the Designation uh, Act, a lot of people, you can read it, but they only, they only retain certain parts of it, you know. They don't read it to understand every little nuance of the act. And, um, because it said protect, enhance, and enhance uh, raptor habitat or raptor prey habitat. And so it became very important that when we issued authorizations to, for the use of the area, like rights of ways or whatever, you know, that we had to make sure that that their use was either compatible or at least didn't have an adverse impact on raptors or raptor prey, but potentially could enhance their habitat in some way if, if we put mitigation uh, things to it. So it put a different spin on on authorizing activities, public use of the of the area that hadn't been there before, you know, and it was a little more difficult to to uh, to allow some activities, and and that was uh, that was uh, kind of difficult for people to understand, you know, because it was a change, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you you know, I'm curious. Like that brings up a question to me because that the area had been set aside before it was officially established as an NCA. So I mean. The area had this level of protection going back to 1980. There was no official designation. So, like, I mean, were there things when you stepped in as the first manager of this NCA, were there things that weren't happening but should have been happening given that this area, like, was supposed to be protected? Well, it wasn't the same level of protection because all mm -hmm. it did before was to keep people from being able to file mining claims and desert land entry type things, you know that would utilize the water resources or, or things like that. 
the NCA Enabling Act went further in saying that whatever you allow out there has to be compatible with protection, preservation of, of raptors and raptor habitat, um, which had not been a requirement before. The only requirement before was that, you know, you couldn't farm and <laughs> you couldn't drill well kind of thing. Um, so there was an additional level of, of protection added to it through the NCA Enabling Act that, uh, that we had to take into account and, and, it, and it affected the way that we could or, or could not authorize certain activities. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. This law, right, like essentially codified like which what was the original reason that that specific area was set aside. I mean, those mm -hmm. boundaries from 1980 were based on the habitat requirements of prairie falcons. It wasn't written down. It wasn't a part of the actual management right. practices until the NCA Enabling Act was passed, as you said. How were you making those decisions? You know what I mean? Was there like a team of folks, some proposed use? How did you decide whether or not it would have a positive or negative impact on, on raptors? It's easy for me to imagine like a whole variety of potential like uses on the landscape where mm -hmm. you'd have to do quite a bit of research in order to like answer that question definitively, right? Well, yeah. Well, that's why I had a staff, you know, I had you know, range con, and I had a wildlife biologist and recreation planner uh, and a geologist, you know. So I had those resource specialists that were able to look at basically almost every activity or every application that came across our desk. And as a team, we would make a determination of whether it was meeting the intent of the act, you know, or not. And uh, you know, it wasn't unusual that we would, we would have to deny or reject an application because it, it wasn't meeting that that intent, you know. Uh, things changed in 90, I don't know if you were around here in 95 or 96. Those are two big fire years. Um, that's when they had the big 8th Street fire, uh, 25,000 acres up on just above, <laughs> uh, above the city up there. But we also had some big, big fires in the NCA those, those two years. And basically, uh, prior to that, when you started down Swan Falls, Everything south of basically the the developed part of town there, it was just a sea of sagebrush. But in 95 and 96, all that burned and all the way down to, uh, I don't know, three or four or five miles south of the, of the power lines there. Um, plus a whole lot of it down toward uh, toward Mountain Home, something in a neighborhood of 300,000 300, acres over those two years. Huge, huge changes in the in the vegetation, and and uh, we went into some massive fire restoration pro projects, um, trying to bring back the shrubs. You know that would uh, ground squirrels don't eat shrubs, but they sure need them for protection. You know to hide under, and and so uh, I mean recognizing that trying to get shrubs reestablished uh, on the NCA is pretty tough, really, because of the moisture regime is so so harsh down there, but uh, you know, I think we've learned a lot over the last you know, almost 20 years or more that we've been doing that. I think we're going to be doing better in the future, but those first uh, few few times we tried it down there, uh, lots of lots of uh, trial and error and lots of not much success, you know, put a lot of stuff on the ground that just didn't come up, you know. So that was one of the big issues that we had to address early on. That's a really dramatic shift, right? And as far as like how you manage the land, I mean, it sounds like that shifted 
your perspective from like, oh, okay, like making decisions about land uses that, you know, like, oh, this, you know, this will have this impact. But then like this outside force dramatically changes the landscape. And then all of a sudden you have to be proactive. Yeah. Right. And you have to actively try to restore that habitat because you're, it's like an active nature, mm-hmm. you know, creates a situation where, oh, okay, we're not meeting the requirements of this law that established the NCA anymore because yeah. of a fire. Right. Yeah. Uh, no. Oh, uh, the uh, the NCRMP. Uh, I don't know if you have a chance to peruse through that, but the whole RMP is based on a premise of of uh, restoring the burned up habitat, basically. And it had it had objectives and goals that people thought were crazy, uh, way more restoration than than we could possibly do. And my continuing response to that is. You know, we're asking to do so much every year, and we may not get funds for that, but in those years where the funds are available, if we don't have those goals set, we're not going to get those funds. And so I want to set our goals higher than, than we expect we can we can meet and uh, to take advantage of funds during those years when, when the funds are available, you know. Uh, and that seemed to kind of mollify most people's concerns, but they thought it was kind of a pie-in-the-sky objective, you know, to, to to restore as much habitat as we were proposing to restore. But, uh, there's a lot of needs out there, you know. Yeah, it was good to have ambitious goals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like conducting research on raptor populations, that's a part of this as well, right? Because you have to know how the raptor populations are doing in order to respond mm-hmm. with, with management decisions. So what, from your perspective, like over the course of the years that you spent as the manager, do you feel like the research was adequate to like make those man- management decisions? Yeah, I, I don't know how much you learned about this. Um, there was an ongoing research program early on. The USGS handled most of the research in cooperation with the National Guard, and I think National Guard funded a lot of it, uh, or maybe even most of it. And uh, it was something that was kind of ongoing when I kind of took over the area. Um, so I wasn't involved in in the development of the research, kind of following it. But in, ni- in 93, I think, is, or 94, no, 95, I think, now that I think about it, is when they f- actually finally published the, rep- the research report to determine whether or not military activities had had an, an effect on the birds of prey. And, what they were going to do if it did, you know. And uh, the research report basically said that that there was n- there was an effect, but it wasn't a significant effect, and that uh, so it was kind of became almost a known issue. But uh, what I had always maintained and still maintain is that the maneuvering activity itself may not have an adverse effect, uh, or at least a measurable effect. But it's the fires that uh, the guard had started that that had an effect. You know, for instance, back in '95 or '96, one of those big bad, uh, years, they had one fire that was 30,000 acres in the impact area. That's a significant amount of you know, habitat we lost in that one fire, caused by live firing activity. You know? uh, there, like I say, there is an effect, uh, but it it's hard to determine whether it's a measurable effect, and so there was really not much positive, at least from my perspective, 
come that came out of that, other than saying that they didn't have a significant effect. And I don't, <laughs> I didn't see that as a positive statement. But uh, right, you know, yeah. Nevertheless, it, it is what it is. You know. Yeah, and I mean that that's that's another interesting aspect. Another another thing that makes this NSA unique, right, is that mm -hmm. like contained within it is this yeah. National Guard Military Combat Training Center. Um, yeah, and it's so unique because it's one of a kind place where maybe the only place where the National Guard trains in areas where they're not withdrawn for that purpose, you know. Well, it's just under a MOU. And uh, and then they bring in other, other Army and, and Marine units from other areas you know, to, to train with them, you know. So it's pretty unique. That is an interesting point. I hadn't. I knew that that area wasn't DOD land, mm -hmm. but it's just managed through uh, an MOU. So mm -hmm. that is an important piece of, um, you know, the the understanding or the. Sorry, I'm, I'm losing my words here, but important piece. But it's not a permanent. Um, so that that could come and go a little bit more easily than if it was DOD property. Yeah, I think the first MOU, I believe, was um, signed in 1976, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, it's been updated several times since then because now they, they being the guard, they like to have an MOU that extends out for at least 25 years. So like every five years, they want to extend it to make sure they still have a 25-year um lease or, or, or permission to use the area because 25 years is a pretty good um, way to make sure that whatever installations they have, uh, they can get their economic use out of it, you know. But uh, yeah, they've, they've done a lot of work down there even since I've been, or since I've you know, no longer been the, the manager in fact most of the stuff they've got down there is probably since I've since I stopped managing that so but I mean what what was it like work I mean I, I assume you had to work really closely as the NCA manager with the guard um, on many levels like I, I mean what what was that like very contentious at first um, we used to have an annual meeting with the guard uh, and I tell you, those first meetings, they were, oh man, uh, they were brutal. It'd be like eight, nine hours long. Um, and uh, very, very contentious because up until that point, no one was really holding them to anything, you know. And then I came along and I'm a little bit of a hard ass. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I started putting my foot down and, and making them total line, and uh, to which they, they didn't appreciate that, you know. And uh, more than one time, I remember their general going to the state director and basically wanted to get me fired. But that uh, luckily they they understood what I was trying to do and, and backed me up. You know. But, uh, what were the points of contention? They were allowing their people to to burn trash, like in the middle of the summer when the state director or the governor had done, uh, you know, uh, emergency fire, uh, whatever we call them. They wouldn't allow anyone to burn or, or have things like that. Their tanks were going outside the designated uh, maneuver areas, you know, uh, into areas that were supposed to be protected from, from maneuver activities. And they were shooting into areas 
but actually conducting both shooting and maneuvers in areas where people were actively doing recreational shooting, you know, out there, and there were potential really bad safety issues, you know. We had to get on top of that issue and basically say, you know, you guys can't maneuver when people are out there, so what you need to do is you need to either start posting guards on entry level, on, on the entry roads that come into the areas that you're planning on maneuvering and then clear out all the recreations that are in that area. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something they really didn't want to do, but uh, it became a standard way of, of dealing with that after a while, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, it does when you're going out there, it looks like it's flat, but it's just rolling enough that... You know, you could be out there two or three hundred yards and not see someone behind a small hill out there shooting, or um, and they're sure not going to see you coming on a you know <laughs> thirty miles an hour with a tank. You know, uh, other activities that we were constantly got on them about. They had a natural resource, or they still do have a natural resources tap, but they had one back then that was really into reseeding, and they really made a lot of issues about how successful they'd been in reseeding. You know. And when I really started going out with them to see what they'd been done doing, what they had done is they'd gone out to these small areas around springs or little areas that held water longer in the year. They would do most of their seedings in these small areas that uh, had, a, had a better uh, moisture regime, could show a, a better uh, restoration effort. You know, I mean, we're talking about small areas, uh, you know, sell them more than 10 or 15 acres, you know, small little pieces, uh, which, in, at least in my mind, didn't really address the issue of the thousands of acres that weren't not, you know, just weren't being, weren't being addressed. And so I pushed hard to say, you know, to get them to start uh, reseeding larger areas that they had impacted on. Um, basically, I said, you know, what you're doing is fine, but it's not doing what you guys need to do. You guys are having much more impact than that. And, you know, it costs them money and time and cost of doing business out there. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you mentioned that at least one of the fires in 95 or 96 that had a really dramatic impact started as a result, as a result of some of the activities going on and out, out there? Oh, yeah. One of them, well, that actually, it wasn't as large a fire. I mean, there were larger fires that year, but there was that one in the impact area, 30,000 acres, yeah, that uh, started in the impact area and burned outside of the impact area and burned a stretch from the southeast corner of the impact area all the way over to uh, to Simcoe Road. And uh, I, I actually issued the guard a, a trespass uh, notice. And I guess from in the history of the guard, it was the first time they'd ever actually paid trespass fines for burning up uh, federal land, you know, uh, because of their activities. And that was something that didn't really sit well with them. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I'm sure it yeah. didn't sit too well with you that this huge fire was yeah. started in the NCA that caused really significant damage mm-hmm. to the habitat, and it was started by the Guard sure. as a result and of their training activities. Yeah, and for years after that, every time during one of their annual meetings that they say, you know, we've done so much restoration, is it really where? And it's, and this is as it does it equal the 30,000 acres you burned up in 19, whatever it was, 1995, 96, you know, and that just was just something I used to kind of gouge them a little bit, you know. <laughs> no. No. I mean, did that, did that relationship improve over the years? I think the managers that have succeeded me are probably not as uh, hard-ass, I guess, as, as I am. And 
So I think they probably have a better relationship, whether it's as an effective relationship or not. I, you know, I couldn't tell you that. You know. Right. Yeah. So it's a better relationship just because you like. They get along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, gotcha. When we first started off, these annual meetings were brutal, you know, eight or nine hours. So, but by the time I left, uh, the annual meetings were like an hour and a half long because we'd, we'd settled a lot of issues over the years. And, and so we didn't, even though we didn't see eye to eye on everything, at least uh, we had settled a lot of issues that were super contentious early on, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know if that's because our relationships were better or, or we just had resolved some, some problems, you know, but uh, it'd be a lot easier to manage toward the end of the time, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to, to come back to research for a moment, you were talking about the results of the long-running research um, that were published in the mid-90s that basically said there wasn't a significant impact mm -hmm. um, that the guard activities were having on raptors. But, like, obviously that's not... That's not the only reason that you would conduct research um, and monitoring work on raptor populations, right? I mean, it's like all the decisions as a manager are supposed to relate back to this this question mm -hmm. put into the, the law that created the NCA of like, is this protecting or benefiting raptor populations? However, like that, at least the long-running research for prairie falcons um, ended after 2003, right? So, like... Something like that, yeah. yeah. I remember exactly. So, I mean, I guess I wonder, like, you know, for you, and obviously, like, there's, like, other research was going on for other species as well, but, like, the prairie falcon was, you know, that was the species that, whose habitat requirements dictated the boundaries of mm -hmm. the NCA, and then you have this long-running research project that, like, provided that information established the NCA and the research stops. And so, I mean, I, I wonder, like, for you as the manager of the NCA at that time, like, what was going on, right? I mean, like, were you um, trying to ensure that that research continued? I mean, because it seems like that's, seems like that would be a really important baseline information for you as a manager. Yeah, there were two major, uh, well, it was more than two, but there were as far as population monitoring, you know, they had the Golden Eagle annual monitoring and the, and the Prairie Falcon monitoring. And uh, the Prairie Falcon monitoring was basically dropped because the funding was dropped. And the Golden Eagle monitoring continued even though we weren't actively funding it because Mike, even though he had retired from USGS, he kind of kept that as his own baby and he would come in and actually... Uh, volunteer on an annual basis. In fact, I I provided him a vehicle, even though I wasn't the manager at the time. When I was still the wilderness program director, I would uh, provide him a, a vehicles over the weekends when he would want to do the golden eagle monitoring, and so I kind of supported him in that way. But uh, there was there was no active funding for research, uh, um, at least from the bureau's perspective, you know, which just didn't exist. You know, you know, and from the USGS standpoint. They relied on outside funding too, and so when that dried up from the guard standpoint and from the standpoint of uh, BSU, BSU, you know, the Raptor program they had at BSU, and that, that funding kind of dried up too. When that goes away and USGS stopped 
officially funding internally uh, research. They they need to get funding from outside sources to, to fund their programs, basically. That was kind of the death knell to the to the Raptor research that was going on in the NCA. You know? And I'm not saying it wasn't important. It just it just wasn't funded, and so it just went away. And the only research that continued on were uh, things that were funded as either master's or PhD level projects that were funded from BSU students, basically, or University of Idaho students. And those had to do with, you know, ground squirrels, habitat, burrowing owls. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were things that were had to do with soils and things like that, but no, no population monitoring, you know. Uh, uh, that dealt a lot with restoration projects, uh, slick spot pepper grass issues, things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. But the population monitoring, the raptor population monitoring kind of went away, you know. I would think there would be people in the BLM that are like clamoring, you know, to like make sure that they have the funding to continue this research because it's like I can't even do my job that I'm legally required to do written into legislation unless I have access to baseline information about what's going on with the Raptors, you know? Yeah, and I think um, because that kind of funding stream went away or dried up, I guess, what was that movie that that they uh, they built this baseball diamond? They said, you know, if you build it, they will come. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Field well, of dreams. Yeah. yeah, okay, field <laughs> dreams. Yeah. Well, the thought process kind of followed that. If you build it, they will come. And so the kind of the efforts in the NCA went from raptor population monitoring to restoration, thinking that. If you build it, they will maintain their populations, or you know, they will they will be able to support the continuing to support the ground squirrels that that then support the raptors. So it kind of went, it flipped from uh, being population centric to to habitat centric, you know, and, and probably largely because habitat restoration is something that that we could actually get funding for. Maybe not every year, but at least most years, you know, because the fire program has has become huge. You know? Don't know how else to explain it other than that. You know? Like as you say, population monitoring is important, but you can only do what you can get funded to do. You know? Yeah, you know, I mean, was that a source of frustration for you or for others in the BLM and other folks working for the NCA? Well, yeah, I mean, and kind of it's it was frustrating for the USGS people who had been monitoring these populations for over 20 years. And I said, what's wrong, BLM? You know, don't you think it's important? Well, yeah, but we don't control the purse strings. You know? <laughs> yeah. We only get what we get. You know? uh, we can ask for lots of money, but Congress gives you what they give you. you know? right. So it's not always something we have any, it's, it's never something we have control over those, but that way. Right. Yeah. At the beginning, which was, you talked about how when you made, when you created the resource management plan, that you set these lofty goals for, mm-hmm. uh, for habitat restoration, right? Yeah. Like knowing that they're probably unachievable, but like in years when the funding is available, then mm-hmm. at least during those years, you get the funding you need to actually potentially meet, yeah. meet those goals. I mean, like, was was there a similar type of mechanism, like, built into the resource management plan to, like, request those funds, even if you knew that you weren't going to get them, just to, like, make whoever is the decision maker aware that, like, the, the managers, the people directly responsible for managing the land, like, want, like, think that this is important? 
Well, yeah, because any anytime you put in a, a, a funding request for uh, you know fire restoration or habitat restoration based on previous fires, one thing you have to say is you know is this supported by the by your RMP, and it is now because RMP says you know you, our goal is to improve up to if I remember right, it was like a hundred thousand acres a year or something like that. It was or no, it couldn't have been that. It was a 20-year plan. It was a huge number each year. I mean, if, if you got funding each year, what we were proposing to do, it was going to be supported by, by our RMP, you know. And that's important because that's what they're going to lean back on and say, you know, what does your RMP say about your proposal, you know? Mm-hmm. It has to be consistent or compatible with that, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Were there other challenges associated with managing this NCA over this long period of time that you did uh, that we haven't talked about? I'm trying to think. Well, uh, or any other interesting developments like out on the landscape that like sort of shifted things or changed uh, the situation in any way? Well, you know, uh, uh, when you look at that exterior boundary of the of the NCA, there was a lot of private land that fell within the within that boundary, and it's interesting because. Apparently, when the boundary was being proposed, they actually went out and talked with private landowners, especially those that were had private land near the exterior boundary, and asked them basically, or at least asked some of them, whether they had concerns about whether or not they were going to be inside or outside the boundary. And so, especially in the area south of the river, you see this boundary going in and like this, or and excluding private land and other pieces where you have large pieces of private land inside the boundary, and so. Uh, it's it's a little bit bizarre the way it was created. And when we did the RMP, one thing we proposed was that realign the boundary, especially on the south, so that everything uh, north or east of Highway 78 was part of the NCA, or at least the public land within that area. Um, and then there were some modifications on the north of the river too, but just the way the boundary was just goes all over the place and doesn't really uh, it just makes it really difficult to, to manage we couldn't because the boundary was set by congress we couldn't reestablish it ourselves all we could do is make a recommendation for congress to do that but that that recommendation has never been realized by congress you know it's still as the same but what we've done in the interim is we've done uh, quite a number of land exchanges where we've required in holdings tried to fill in where there were once in, uh, you know, in holdings, private, both private and state. And now we're, we have this big state exchange proposed uh, that uh, Amanda has been working on getting up and running, which will basically acquire all the state lands now in the NCA, kind of clean up that area. At least all of them, except the, I think there's four or five sections inside the impact area that we don't want, you know, because of potential hazmat issues that we'd have to address. Um, but everything outside the impact area, uh, we would then basically acquire all those state lands and kind of consolidate the, the federal ownership in the NCA. You know? Gotcha. That's something that I started, I don't know, done maybe eight or ten exchanges of various sizes in the NCA from, you know, while I was a manager. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. Is that uh, something that the state is on board with or, or you know, at least willing to, to kind of work through? I know. If you look at a map, there's kind of a patchwork of state parcels that are just kind of distributed throughout the NCA. Um, it seems like sort of a no-brainer that it might be nice if all that was was BLM managed. But I was just curious on your thoughts on what the state the state's perspective on that is. Yeah, the state the state wants out of the NCA. Um, obviously, any 
anytime they have lands um, in a special designated area, it impacts what they can do on their property because access to those areas um, and because of the impacts outside of an area that you're you're allowing use in it impacts potentially impacts the nca which means that it impacts the way they can manage their properties so they want out of the nca and they've looked at other lands outside the nca to to acquire uh, or at least to block up you know their their whole management scheme is is fashioned on the constitutional mandate to to maximize revenues from state lands i mean that's that's what the constitution says for the department of lands and ours is obviously not ours is to protect and, and enhance raptor habitat you know so they they're not they're not consistent they're not compatible uh, goals and so to the extent that we can block them up and we can block us up i think it helps both of us you know and so we've consolidated or we've come to agreement on which lands i think that we want to exchange and it ends up being about fifteen thousand acres on a side something like that you know so the current land exchange program lead i expect to see that uh, proposal come across my desk in the next six months probably you know so we'll see it'd be a good deal yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. I, I, just from the surface, um, I don't want to make this an official stance by our organization, but it sounds, it sounds, it sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Um, interesting. I mean, that's like bringing your like two areas of expertise together, mm -hmm. right? Um, like your background, you know, managing yeah. the NCA and focus yeah. on yeah. land acquisitions. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, it's almost exactly the same thing we're, we're currently doing. We're just about ready to uh, close a land exchange with the state where we're acquiring all of the state inholdings in those wilderness areas down in the Wyhees. Mm -hmm. And that we're acquiring, I'm trying to think, about 24,000 acres. And so uh, this one won't be quite as big, but uh, it's you know, just as important. You know? Yeah. What concerns do you have for the future of this NCA? One of the concerns I have, I guess, is future management, not really understanding the importance of the Enabling Act and what it allows them to uh, to do or allows them to require of the people who are using the NCA, because they're they're increasingly distanced from the, the Enabling Act and, and all the concern that, that came about through that act or that, were, that was resolved through that act, I guess, if you want to put it that way. And now people think, well, it's an NCA and uh, their distance from the actual enabling process kind of softens or it's not as important to them, it seems like, as, as it was to the people who were there early on, you know, and, and as part of that process. You know? but, and now there's a lot um, of other NCAs. And so maybe people think of like, oh, this NCA is managed just like every other NCA, but it's really not because there's this very specific, mm -hmm. you know, uh, guidelines as far as managing it to protect and enhance habitat for birds of prey. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not certain how many other NCAs there are. There's very few, though. Most there are several national monuments, but uh, very few national conservation areas. And I don't really understand. Other than the fact that, you know, one is created by legislature, one is created by the presidential, you know, an executive order. Uh, that's the only difference between them. But, uh, and that's why probably there aren't as many NCAs, because it takes Congress to enact that, you know. Mm. Yeah, that's a concern I have. I mean, if I was still the manager, <laughs> probably I would have not allowed the National Guard to do as much building down there or construction as they're currently doing but then i'm not i also don't know all of the i'm not aware of all the agreements that took place to to allow them to do those things you know? mm -hmm. i do understand that the guard now basically funds a full-time person to handle the realty 
aspects of all the rights of ways they're, they're doing, which I think is good, but when you look at it the other way, that means they have a hell of a lot of right of ways they're wanting to construct down there. Mm. So, I mean, is that good? I don't, you know, I, I don't know because I'm just not involved with it, but right. I see both sides of it. You know, you know. Right. Were you still the manager when this whole Gateway West issue came into play? Yeah, in fact, uh, boy, I don't know how many uh, meetings I went to, uh, you know, in Marsing and CUNA and Grandview and, and places like that, you know. I was right in their firing line, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because if you remember, the NCRMP was completed in 2008, and that's when this Gateway West thing started. The problem was, or not the, the problem, but the, what happened was during the process of developing the RMP in 2006, it was uh, the corridor. You know, they established all these national corridors, right? And that was happening right when we were developing the RMP, and they wanted to pull one right through the NCI. I said, hell no, I'm not going to allow you to do that. You've got one north and you've got one south. That's all you need. You're going to stick to that one, and those are going to be those are going to be your work quarters. And I didn't get any pushback, you know. But it all came to head when they started with the Gateway West, was that Idaho Power said, well, BLM won't let us go through the NCA, so we, we're stuck with having to be in the in their wet corridors that they established in the RMP. And then people started looking at the map and saying, wait a minute, that wet corridor, half of that or more than half of it is private land, you know. They said, you're not going to put that across my property, <laughs> you know. Put it on BLM land, and you know. It was a huge, huge problem. And, uh, yeah, I, I was 20 or 30 different meetings in various cities, uh, small these cities that were going to be adversely impacted or the property owners would have been in, impacted. You know, I could feel their pain, you know, but they rose up basically and, and said, hell no, we're not going to let you go. And the county said, hell no, we're not going to issue a permit uh, to build through our county if you're going to put it on a private land, things like that, you know. And here, in, you know, we're more in some states, the permits are issued by the state. Here in Idaho, they're issued by counties. Each separate county is, has its own permitting requirements or, or processes, you know. So that was going to be a big deal, um, a big issue. And finally, it was handled legislatively, of course, you know, by de-designating a part of the NCA, which amounted to a, what, 250-foot-wide strip right through the NCA, the new Gateway West right-of-way, you know. So, whatever. Mm -hmm. of, of all the alternative routes and, and things that were proposed, how do you feel about that final decision to withdraw a corridor and, and run it through? Um, is that something that you would have pushed for or you would have pushed for a different route? Or what are your thoughts on that? That was that was a route that was proposed early on by Idaho Power Company during the uh, during the planning for the RMP, and I said hell no, and they said why, and I said they said because right now we've got a 139 kV line running, we would just put that in the same on the same alignment, and I says with a 500 kV line, what you're going to be doing is put in a major access road through there. And what that's going to do is bring more recreational people in there, and you're going to have more fires and more uh, more vehicle impacts to the vegetation down there and right there in that area from basically the Swan Falls access road where it goes down in Swan Falls on south south uh, east down there that's some of the best remaining habitat in the NCA and what I didn't want was people getting down there and screwing it up and start more fires and end up burning burning even more and so I just said hell no we're not going to do that so uh, but it ended up exactly where 
where I didn't want it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, another issue with some of the southern routes, uh, so south of the NCA and, and south of some of that private land, you get right into the Wahis and you get into sage grouse mm -hmm. habitat. And so you've got another uh, contentious mm -hmm. route and another set of, of problems. So, um, yeah, I, I got involved with that project a little bit um, in 2008. And as soon as I started to dig in, I was like, oh, I don't know how this is going to get hammered out without someone being really impacted and, and some other people being very happy. There's a lot of things to consider in that routing. I'm not sure which way is the best way. What kind of mitigated for me the issue of the new, you know, the legislative right-of-way through there, or the declassified designation, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, was the fact that a few years ago, there was a process, I can't remember what it was called, but anyway, uh, they had a bunch of money that they wanted to uh, to spend, uh, Department of Interior, and they wanted to, because they had a lot of money, they, they needed projects that had, were on the shelf ready to go. They didn't want you to have to do these long EISs or EAs to develop a project. They, they wanted to fund, they had the money right now and they had to spend it. So if you had a project that was on the shelf ready to go, that was it. Well, <laughs> coincidentally enough, Prior to when I started as the manager of the NCA, some of the managers within the district had looked at developing what up until that time was a, really a poor road from basically the top of the hill there going down to the into the Swan Falls, all the way down to the substation uh, just above the hill coming out of Grandview. It was a, I mean, it was a road that they had put in when they built that 139 kV line, but it was just a yeah, dust bowl most of the time. You know? It's just a really a bad road. And you had to have a high clearance four-wheel drive because it was rutted so badly. And so one of the projects from their perspective was to upgrade that road so it was kind of an all-weather road. And so when this project call came along, they pulled this project off of the shelf and said it's been sitting on for six, eight years, whatever it was. And they got like a million and a half or so dollars to build that road. So that actually that road got built even before the 500 kV line was projected for that site. So it actually, you know, the access question that I had been pushing back on all this time was kind of a moot point at that stage because that road had already been improved, you know. I don't know how many big dump trucks load of gravel they brought up from Grandview. I don't know where they got it from. I think they actually bought it from Simplot, but just hundreds of loads of gravel they brought up to, to build that road there. So it kind of made my argument <laughs> about improved access because the Gateway West thing, kind of a moot question. So that was the way it happened. It was kind of odd, you know. So I guess when, uh, when the legislation was passed, I didn't feel as bad as I would have had that road not already been built, you know. As a, you know no. Do you think with the increase in population in the valley and the increased pressure, and the NCA that that shooting is going to be an issue, or going to continue to be an issue down the road. And is that something that that you foresee as, a, as an issue to keep an eye on? Yeah, especially in the uh, the orchard training area. You know, I think it's become a real problem. It's a problem that no one wants to take on, though, uh, because you know the secretary's secretary of interiors. Uh, there's no way right now that he's going to allow you to shut down shooting you know it's been recreational shooting and uh, things like that are, it's it's like a sacred cow now you know right i mean it was bad then but it's it'd be super impossible right now you know 
Do you mm-hmm. see, like, so you mentioned some near misses in the past, mm-hmm. um, but there's a high potential for either a civilian who's recreational shooting to to shoot a soldier or, mm-hmm. or vice versa. And do you think it'll be an, inc- an incident like that that'll be the thing that kind of catapults this issue into the forefront? Or is it something that we can take care of with hopefully before an unfortunate incident like that happens? Well, even back then, I mean, one of the issues, I mean, the guards supported that too because they, they said that it was not uncommon for those uh, people driving those tanks to hear the bullets pinging off of the tanks, you know? Because people wouldn't shoot them because they knew it was you're not going to hurt a tank, you know. It's kind of kind of neat to hit something moving down the street. So obviously someone's going to get shot or killed someday. Um, but uh, I just don't I just don't see in the, today's climate that it's going to happen though. You know, <laughs> they'll probably post signs, you know, enter at your own risk or something like that. And, right. But you sign know, your waiver on the way in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Politics is a. And just something that's almost impossible to manage over, you know? Right. That was our interview with John Sullivan, former manager of the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by Steve Alsip and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle. <laughs>